Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With your WWE Clash at the Castle instant analysis. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here to break down everything that happened Saturday afternoon here in the United States, Saturday evening in the United Kingdom with WWE Clash at the Castle, the company's first stadium show in Europe in over three decades. So we are going to talk about every single match on the show, what went down in those matches, storyline implications, and what we think is going to go on in the future from a WWE creative standpoint. But before we get to all of that, we need to do one thing, and that is remind you of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So please, folks, especially this week, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple. Also drop a written review. Let everyone know why you love the show and why they should subscribe. The written reviews are super important. They help us gain listeners and subscribers, which of course helps us grow. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode releases. As soon as we publish, we let you guys know first on Twitter. You can vote in pre and post show polls and join us for our live shows on Twitter spaces, which we do before every premium live event and pay-per-view. We did the first edition of all of those this weekend for WWE Clash of the Castle, which means we have two live shows and four more polls to come out on Sunday for NXT Worlds Collide and AEW All Out. Speaking of both those shows, we have Ultimate Preview podcast episodes taped in our feed, so be sure to listen to both of those before the events on Sunday. But we're not here to talk about that. We are here to break down WWE Clash at the Castle. Now, due to scheduling conflicts, Chris will not be joining me today. You will get his full take on WWE Clash at the Castle in our normal WWE show On Tuesday, he will be with us, however, on Sunday to break down at a minimum AEW All Out, possibly NXT Worlds Collide as well. But like I said, this is the WWE Clash at the Castle instant analysis, and we are going to break down everything from this show. Normally at this moment, the Silver King would pop open a cold one and enjoy a beverage, an adult beverage of choice. Uh, while we break this down. Unfortunately, given the fact that Chris is not here, it means I don't have any time to pause and have a drink. Also, it's the middle of the day. So we normally save those for our evening show breakdowns, which means there's no more delays. We're getting right into the WWE Clash at the Castle instant analysis straight off the bat here, folks. The set was gorgeous. Other than perhaps wanting a bit more above the entrance, they could have done like a castle wall titantron or something like that. Other than that, this was extremely eye-catching. The castle screen that was built above the ring was extraordinary, and I loved the simplicity around the ring. There were no LED boards or ring posts. It was just plain black barricades and the regular uh, wrapped-up ring posts. It kept the eye focused on the ring and the crowd, which were the two most captivating things of the entire show. The only thing I didn't really understand is why there was such a limited amount of pyro. I think we only got one thing of sparklers when Riddle did his entrance and kicked off his sandals uh, during the entire show. Like, I don't know if there's a rule in the United Kingdom or Wales about indoor stadium shows and pyro. 
if WWE didn't want to do it because they were worried about the proximity of the crowd. I don't get why they didn't do it. It would have made it feel even bigger than it already was, but there was an entire lack of pyro on this show. Now, in terms of breaking down the matches, I just want to set the stage for everyone so you know how this is going to go. We start with the main event. We basically start with the biggest match on the show and work our way down the card. We don't do it in order of operation in terms of the way WWE presented it. We want to hit you with the big guns right off the top and then go through the rest. Also, given there was a go-home show on SmackDown that somewhat impacted three of the matches on the card, we're going to break down what happened on SmackDown before we talk about those individual matches. With that out of the way, let's get started with the undisputed WWE Universal Championship, the main event of Clash at the Castle, Roman Reigns against Drew McIntyre. First, from SmackDown, Sami Zayn was in a red and black tuxedo for Roman Reigns' two-year championship celebration. Jimmy dapped him up. Sami said he got a tribal print design. He compared it against their tattoos, but both of them laughed at him. Uh, the Usos said Paul Heyman should be there, but he's still in traction. Jay asked why Sami could barely uh, help him against Kevin Owens, refused to use the chair, but he had the time to do this. Sammy then later received rotten flowers with a note that said TikTok. Later, Jay and Sammy um, were talking and Jay said that Sammy was getting too comfortable because he ain't blood yet. Jimmy told them both to calm down. Finally, we got to the segment. Uh, the ring had a black carpet and photos of Reigns. It was actually pretty shitty for a big time celebration, two years of a championship reign. Sammy made sure it was okay to host, but after he made a snide comment about Jay, Jay took over the entire thing and Sammy just co-signed everything that he said. As they introduced Reigns, he pulled up to the arena in an SUV without his titles. McIntyre hit him with a Claymore into the car door immediately. Zayn ate a Glasgow kiss when McIntyre came down before he cleared the ring of the Usos and hit a Tope Con Hero into all three of them. Zayn put a chair into his gut, but Drew immediately came back with a Claymore into the chair. McIntyre then suplexed Jimmy through the announce table and speared Jay through the barricade. He grabbed the mic to say he would never, ever stop and that he would become champion. Everything with Sammy and the Usos was great, as usual. This was nonsensical, though, what they did here. Why would Reigns just be pulling up to the arena after the announcement, and why wouldn't he be there the entire show? Ideally, the ending last week, Reigns sitting on the chair over McIntyre holding both titles, that would have been the go-home moment. But I guess with SmackDown taped and the ending happening just 15 hours before Clash at the Castle actually began... They probably had to do it a week earlier. But what this did was make it pretty clear that someone else would need to get Reigns back if he was going to survive McIntyre, be it Paul Heyman or otherwise, because he took out all of those guys with relative ease. As you would later learn, uh, they were all injured to the point that they weren't able to make the trip over to the United Kingdom. Heyman is still in traction, so he's not available. And is Reigns really going to go one-on-one against McIntyre. The other thing it did was basically play seemingly into the WWE trope of the person who is going to lose the main event is the one that stands tall on the go-home show to basically sell the pay-per-view, even though you're not necessarily going to get what you expect by the time the main event ends. And I said that uh, on our live show, our pre-show on Twitter Spaces. I said this exact same thing to Chris and everyone who was listening to that, that it just kind of played into that mindset of, oh, wow, after we all predicted McIntyre, maybe Drew's not going to win after all. So let's get to what actually happened at Clash at the Castle. McIntyre made his entrance. It began with Broken Dreams. They used that as a video package, a callback to his old time in WWE. Uh, when it ended, 
Drew, his regular music hit and he made his entire entrance to the ring. Once that got cut off, there was a seven nation army chant with them using Drew McIntyre's name. Reigns entered on his own. And then at that point, commentary basically explained neither the Usos nor Zayn were medically cleared to join him. And obviously, Heyman is still out of action. I forgot to mention that Karrion Cross and Scarlett were also sitting ringside for the match. The crowd was electric for the entrances, the introductions, and at the bell. Reigns was disturbed at the Drew and Seven Nation Army chance for McIntyre to the point that it actually delayed the start of the match. McIntyre threw Reigns into the steel steps outside when he got hit with a water bottle out of nowhere. Uh, Michael Cole did a great job selling that this was something random from the crowd, but it turned out when the crowd, uh, sorry, when the camera panned, that it was indeed Cross who threw the water bottle at him. Uh, That gave Reigns an opening to kind of take control. Reigns beat down McIntyre from there to the point that he grabbed the microphone in the middle of the match and screamed, acknowledge me to the crowd. This was 14 minutes into the match, mind you, but it did pick up massively from there. Uh, That was an opening with Reigns grabbing the mic for McIntyre to bounce back with a Glasgow kiss and all of his signature moves. The kiss set off like a sweat bomb in the middle of the ring. McIntyre sold it just as much as Reigns did, which was really cool. Reigns was prone, but he kept moving away from McIntyre's big moves, like a would-be Claymore attempt, for example. Uh, McIntyre caught Reigns with a great spine buster and a jackknife cover for a 2.8. Reigns hit a Uranagi for a near fall. McIntyre countered the spear into a Future Shock DDT. Reigns then countered Claymore with a Superman punch for another 2.8. McIntyre countered the spear with a kick, and they began running the ropes for what I thought was going to be a Claymore. Instead, Reigns hit the spear for a 2.9 false finish. Then he locked in the guillotine, but Reigns powered out. Sorry, McIntyre powered out of it. Reigns locked the guillotine back in, but McIntyre never left his feet the second time. He powered out of it again, throwing Reigns into the post and then doing a short spear into the barricade outside. McIntyre rolled back inside, but Reigns countered the Claymore with a second spear for a 2.99 false finish. Roman screamed at Charles Robinson for not counting three, even grabbing him by the shirt. McIntyre caught him with a Claymore to the back of the head. Then Reigns fell into Robinson, knocking him outside. Suddenly, Austin Theory runs in with money in the bank, but as he goes to like the timekeeper to cash it in, Tyson Fury knocks him out cold with a forearm from behind the barricade. Back inside the ring, Reigns had a chair, McIntyre caught him with a claymore, the referee got revived for another 2.99 false finish, they exchanged punches, Reigns hit a Superman punch, McIntyre then caught him with a spear and a claymore, and the crowd is going wild. The referee runs back in, rolls back in, I should say, only to start counting one, two, and on three, he gets pulled out of the ring by Solo Sokoa in maybe the most false of a false finish of all time. Uh, Solo snapped Drew's neck over the top rope and Reigns hit him with a spear as Robinson slid back inside a second time for the one, two, three, with Reigns retaining the WWE Universal Championships after 31 minutes. And then after the bell, Fury stepped through the ropes. He shook Reigns' hand in the show of respect. Then he lifted McIntyre up off the canvas, raised his arm. He grabbed the microphone. He said, everyone there came to see McIntyre. He made his country and all the fans proud. And he gave a great effort. And at that moment, I was ready for the show to go off the air. Instead, Fury did the thing where he sings American Pie after fights, in this case, after someone else's fight. McIntyre took the mic. He said he should have known that Reigns had something off his sleeve, but his island made him proud, meaning, I guess, the United Kingdom in totality. Uh, McIntyre then vowed to get his hands on the titles, and then he sang a bit of Sweet Caroline as 
he was surprised the show was still on the air. I know they wanted a nice ending for the UK fans, but it really seemed like McIntyre and Fury should have gotten into it. Like there should have been a fight or something. Uh, but I believe Fury can't wrestle because he's planning for a boxing match that's coming up and he obviously can't put himself at risk. But going back to the match, this was an exceptional main event that concluded an exceptional show. Spoiler alert. It was hard hitting and thrilling. There were multiple legitimate false finishes and the final sequence 100% sold me that we were getting the title change, even though I did ha- hear, you know, going into the show that Solo Sokoa had made the trip. I thought that rumor might have been a red herring. I know a lot of people want Reigns to drop the title. I also want Reigns to drop the title. And this was the perfect spot to do it, not just in terms of location and fan reaction, but the finishing sequence is exactly what a finishing sequence should be when Reigns loses. First eating his own move, then taking a finisher and not having anyone else there to lift him up. There was even a ready-made excuse for, hey, I'm on foreign soil, I don't have any of my support system, blah, blah, blah. They could have explained it away. So in that way, I was disappointed because it was the perfect spot to do the title change. And on top of that, Reigns never seems to suffer any consequences for all the constant interferences and all the help that he gets to retain the title. But he is a heel. And this is how heels win, especially when they have two-year-long title reigns. This match was on its way to an A+, but with so many outside forces, interferences and the like, I'll settle at 4.5 stars and an A. In terms of the extras, the Fury shot at Theory was exceptional. I also, in my head, had the idea of Tyson and Austin, Tyson and Austin. It would have been really cool if Michael Cole did that, but he unfortunately, he did not. Uh, Both the entrance and the forearm with Theory and Fury got huge pops from the crowd. And I thought it was also really smart to do the cross thing in the beginning of the match as a red herring for possible interference from him that never ultimately came. Looking ahead though, the question becomes, when does Reigns drop one or both of these titles? He still has plenty of challengers, as we've mentioned. This is what I was talking about on the Ultimate Preview when I initially picked Reigns before changing it. Cross is out there. Kevin Owens, Seth Rollins, Theory has the briefcase. And of course, Cody Rhodes is out there rehabilitating. Maybe it's as simple as us not getting Reigns versus The Rock at WrestleMania. And instead, it's Reigns versus Cody. And Cody beats him for the title. Because you're not if you're not changing the title here in this crazy ass environment in Cardiff, Wales, where McIntyre would have gotten a huge thunderous pop by finally beating Reigns, then the only other opportunity to get a nuclear level pop for a babyface is Cody over Roman at WrestleMania. That's it. And that's why I shouldn't have let Chris convince me to change my pick to McIntyre because it went down exactly like I thought when I initially explained the concept of Reigns retaining. Now, I'm not upset. It was a great match and a great classic like screw job wrestling finish. I just think everyone that was watching at home, certainly everyone that was watching in Wales was ready for the change and ready for McIntyre to go over in the United Kingdom. And it ultimately just didn't happen. And the reason for it not happening needs to be a good one, but we're not gonna know about that until it actually comes. So I think it's fair to believe 
that something like this was executed at a high level in terms of quality, yet still be disappointed in the decision-making itself. The only thing about all of this that really, truly bothered me was the post-match with Fury and McIntyre kind of like letting go of the loss pretty easily, like to work that hard for the moment, make all of these promises about beating Reigns and lose like that in front of what's basically a hometown crowd. That should not have been his reaction in any way, shape, or form. It made him look like a clown. Think about Lex Luger in 1993, for example. Like, this isn't going to kill Drew like it did Lex, but it was a horrible decision for them to do this. Now, if they forgot to cut the broadcast and Fury was going to lift him up and put him over and that was going to be the final thing and they take a break and then they do that for the UK audience, that would have been great. But given cameras stayed on it the entire time, I think they purposefully allowed this to be the final moment of the show. And I think that was a bad idea. What they should have done is what they did for Sheamus. You let McIntyre get a huge ovation from the crowd. It puts him over as a super strong baby face. Fury daps him up. He comes out of the corner, daps him up. You, you fade to black. And then you do this for the hometown crowd. That was a really, really big mistake. But other than the Fury and McIntyre thing, Triple H gets the benefit of the doubt from a creative standpoint. We can't actually judge this booking decision until we ultimately see what happens with the undisputed WWE Universal Championship. Does it get split? Does Reigns hold it all the way another however many months, seven, eight months till WrestleMania and drops it to Cody? If it's that, then maybe it makes sense depending on the reaction Cody gets. If it's not, then we're gonna look back on this and say, you know what? They should have changed the title in Cardiff, Wales and they made a big mistake because Clash at the Castle was awesome and that would have put it over the top. But again, we're not gonna know until he ultimately drops the title and we can compare apples to apples. What would have been better? Drew winning it here or X person winning it wherever it happens. So that is the breakdown of the main event. Let's get to everything else that happened at Clash of the Castle. Let's go to the co-main event of the show, Matt Riddle versus Seth Rollins. Rollins had like the wildest year. It was like a Loki helmet, red wings, orange fire clothes. There was kind of like an Elton John vibe to the entire thing, whatever. Uh, Riddle was on fire at the bell. He even got into it with the referee. Rollins hit him with a barricade bomb and a tope suicida plus a tree of woe double stomp. Rollins then hit the superplex, but Riddle rolled upwards into a fisherman's buster instead of eating the falcon arrow. He hit the springboard floating bro outside, then countered the pedigree into bro to sleep, hitting a powerbomb and a pump knee also for a 2.9 count. Rollins countered floating bro with doubled knees. Riddle escaped the stomp, but caught Rollins with a triangle submission. Rollins nearly tapped, but he eventually escaped and hit Riddle with his own bro Derek for a false finish. They countered moves and traded short blows. Rollins hit his forearms, but Riddle countered a stomp attempt with a pump knee. Riddle came back with a gut-wrenched German suplex. Rollins flipped out of Bro Derek and hit the pedigree for a 2.99 false finish. Rollins grabbed Riddle's hair and he started screaming that he's a loser. His wife knows it and his kids will know it soon. At that moment, Riddle absolutely lost it and Rollins took advantage of that. He hit Randy Orton's draping DDT on Riddle. The crowd did Rollins chant the sing-along as he tried the RKO, but Riddle caught him midair for a rear naked choke. He pounded on the back of his head, knocking him outside the ring, where he then grabbed a chair and he tried to do a concerto using the announce table, but Rollins escaped. He rolled back inside, catching Riddle with the stomp as he entered through the ropes. The crowd again did Rollins chant and he had a stomp from the second rope to win clean in 17 minutes. This just had anything and everything you could want from a match. A complete 
well-told match story, multiple false finishes, top-tier wrestling, a clean win for the heel that kept the face strong, given that he ate multiple finishes and mostly lost due to psychology more than anything else. It was everything that you could want in a wrestling match. It's definitely an A+. I probably need to go back and determine whether it was five stars or 4.75. I already tweeted five, so I'm gonna go ahead and say five here. Going back over the match though, verbally, I kind of need to go back and remember, was it as good as I thought or was it just a great finish? But it was an A-plus match either way. Um, Given Extreme Rules is coming up in five weeks, it does seem like this will get run back so Riddle can use weapons. Will that happen? I don't know. Five weeks is a long time to keep the story going. In some ways, I kind of hope they move on and, and Rollins uses this to propel himself back into the world title picture. If they run it back again and Riddle wins, you know, it's kind of 50-50 booking. What's the point of that? Then here we are with Rollins again in another three-month-long match. Maybe they do a, a tiebreaker at um, a rubber match, in other words, at uh, Crown Jewel, Blood Money in the Sand. I kind of just hope they move on. Um, maybe Randy Orton returns and factors into it. We will find out. But this, for what we got on Saturday, Clash at the Castle, was phenomenal. The Intercontinental Championship match that we have been waiting for. Gunther defending against Sheamus. On SmackDown, Butch fought Ludwig Kaiser. Butch was in his Pete Dunne singlet with maroon colors in his Titantron, but he was still technically Butch, acting like the Tasmanian Devil. Kaiser hit two great inside-out front slams. Butch came back with bitter end for the clean win. Gunther and Sheamus got into it after the bell, but Kaiser convinced Gunther to back down and save it for their match. I didn't want to go long on the breakdown here, but it was a great match. 3.5 stars and a B. Uh, Higher grade, probably, if it went longer. Call him Butch Dunn. Tone down the rabidness a little bit, and they're good to go. In terms of Clash of the Castle, the Intercontinental title match was second on the card. Before Gunther's entrance, Ludwig Kaiser announced Giovanni Vinci and the return of Imperium. They were back wearing all black, making their entrance together. The Brawling Brutes and Imperium immediately brawled as Gunther and Sheamus just stared at each other unmoved face-to-face, just like they did on SmackDown two weeks ago. Gunther chopped so hard, the first chop that he gave, I think, that Sheamus fell off the top rope outside. His chest was quickly bloodied as Gunther just destroyed him with chops and strong style blows for a really long time. Sheamus refused to give up. Sheamus caught a Gunther chomp and turned the tables. He started beating him on the announce table, then hit the 10 beats of the ballery on the apron. Then he did it again like 15 times over the barricade with Gunther retreating. His chest was red. It wasn't bloody like Sheamus, but it was red. Gunther ate a huge pump knee for a near fall. Sheamus countered the powerbomb into white noise for another one. The guys were absolutely exhausted and the crowd was going wild for them. Sheamus missed a bro kick. Gunther hit the shotgun dropkick and half of a powerbomb for a relatively weak false finish. Sheamus took Gunther off the top rope with Razor's Edge, the Celtic Cross, for a 2.9 false finish. Sheamus then went for a bro kick, but his back gave out. Gunther took advantage with a powerbomb, but was unable to cover. They both screamed as Gunther slowly stood up and ran at Sheamus with a huge lariat to retain the title in what can only be described as a 20-minute brawl. Sheamus got a literal standing ovation, and he got a chant from the crowd after it was all over, and Gunther had already exited, and it was actually a little bit emotional too. This match was every single thing I wanted it to be, and more. That's the most action I've had all year. These guys beat the ever-loving shit out of each other. It was the definition of... Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> That's what I want. 
That's what I wanted to see. That's what I got to see. These guys were so spent. I'm not sure it could have gone another five or 10 minutes. If it did, it would have been even better. Gunther was the right winner. I love, love, love how he is allowed to win matches without the finisher being the final move. Just a chop, or in this case, a lariat. It's so real and believable for that to happen. I would love it if WWE ran this back and Sheamus took the title off Gunther at WrestleMania. First, we get Gunther and Bobby Lashley at Survivor Series in November. The back that gave out on Sheamus, it gives us an easy story to run it back. And then if Gunther does get past Lashley, whether he wins, Lashley wins, it's a no contest, I don't know what they're gonna do there. But if Gunther does get past Lashley at Survivor Series, there is no reason for him to drop the title before WrestleMania. And if you save it for WrestleMania, you could definitely rematch this and Sheamus would get a massive reaction as a babyface. This was an A-plus match without any doubt. And yes, five stars, despite that one minor botch that I mentioned on the first powerbomb. This was probably one of the best wrestling matches of the year, any brand. Of course, this also gets five full slabs of beef. Coming out of this, I do question the decision with Vinci. Not so much calling him up, but throwing him right back with Imperium and seemingly removing the gimmick that he had been establishing in NXT because it was really working for him. He was more interesting as Giovanni Vinci in NXT than he was at any point in NXT UK or the United States as Fabian Eichner. Now bringing him up, it does give us Imperium back, which is great. It also creates a needed, badly needed, top-tier tag team with Ludwig Kaiser. I suppose they could break up at some point and he could always go back to the gimmick that he was using in the future. So it's just kind of tough to evaluate. It really, the move really does have its positives and negatives. But again, the Vinci gimmick was totally working for me in NXT. So I'll call this an upgrade for the main roster, but a downgrade for Vinci individually, if that makes sense. Uh, we have the SmackDown Women's Championship, Liv Morgan defending against Shayna Baszler. On SmackDown, Baszler talked some shit backstage. Morgan stepped up to her saying she's not afraid and will not tap out. She promised to rip Baszler's arm off and they started staring at each other face-to-face to end the segment. The only negative here was that it happened backstage. Once the match was made, aside from, I think, the contract signing, they've barely been featured in front of the crowd. They weren't featured at all two weeks ago. And then here we were, on the go-home SmackDown, and they're just kind of hidden backstage. Maybe they thought Liv might get booed if they put her in front of the crowd, but you're not even giving her a chance to get over. So I just thought that was a very odd decision. In terms of the match itself, Liv was an all-white. I don't know what specifically she was representing. It was maybe Madonna. I thought it could have been Sensational Sherry. Tribute gear from the 92 SummerSlam. Either way, she looked great. Baszler did also, I should note. Uh, She pushed her off the ropes outside on a springboard attempt and threw Liv into the barricade. The match was really slow at the start. The crowd was mostly quiet after two really hot openers. Liv hit the springing code breaker off the ropes. Then Baszler caught her flying with a lifted knee for a near fall. Morgan surprisingly caught Baszler in a triangle and then an extended armbar. Baszler hit another big knee, but Liv came back, taking her off the ropes with a powerbomb that really popped the crowd. Shayna quickly moved into a Kirafuda clutch and an armbar, but Liv broke them. Liv then countered another Kirafuda clutch hitting the Codebreaker and Oblivion in succession for the 1-2-3 to retain the title in 11 minutes. This picked up massively in the finish, and there was really nothing wrong with the match whatsoever. There was also a strong match story, which you know I always appreciate. 
of Shayna continuously underestimating Liv at every turn, almost like she was playing with her food during the match and refused to put her away. That gets extra credit for me. It was great to see Liv get a squeaky clean win over a legitimate challenger. And even though it wasn't consistently exciting bell to bell, it was a perfectly good match and probably one of like Liv's two best singles matches of her career, I would probably say. So it's a B uh, between 3.25 and 3.5 stars. I do need to watch it again. Probably the, the lower of the two, but it was a flat B, a very good match. And they did live well in allowing her to beat Baszler this way. In terms of what happens going forward with her, uh, we're going to talk on Tuesday show about what happened with Ronda Rousey on the go-home SmackDown. But it would be really nice if Rousey and Baszler teamed up, moved into the women's tag team division, and Liv was allowed to just go after and defeat other individual women's challengers, not named Ronda Rousey. Of course, they could also just immediately go back to the Rousey feud and have her win the title at Extreme Rules. Definitely possible. We will see on Friday which direction they go. Uh, Bailey, Dakota Kai, and Io Sky fought Bianca Belair, Asuka, and Alexa Bliss in that six-woman tag team match. This actually opened the show. The heels are now officially called Damage Control with a new entrance theme. It was actually a banger. Bliss walked out without Lily. That should be noted. Uh, at the bell, fans sang the Be My Girl song for Bailey for like the first five minutes of the match. She hated it because she was a heel, but you could tell she also like sneakily loved it as well. But the crowd was absolutely awesome. And when I say they sang it for five minutes, I'm really not exaggerating. They sang it for like the first five minutes of the match. Uh, the heels pulled Belair's arms out from under her on a handspring moonsault attempt. The faces came back with a triple suplex and Belair hit a triple handspring moonsault. There was also a really cool commentary moment. Michael Cole mentioned that Io's sister, Mio Shirai and Asuka used to be with her in a faction in Japan. I really didn't think he'd be spitting some Joshi knowledge out here, but here we go. Michael Cole, uh, you know, no uh, no constraints anymore with Vince McMahon. He's talking about Joshi wrestling. Uh, he also ensured, he did a very good job making sure that he kept listing the legal woman during the match because it was chaotic. The tags happened, you know, plenty. They were, they were plentiful. But because there was so much action between the tags and they were so fast, Cole had to keep track of who was legal and he did a really good job of that. Bliss hit Sky with a code red out of the corner, but she wasn't legal for a fall. So Kai caught Bliss with a huge boot. Bliss caught Kai with a DDT. Asuka got the hot tag and had a great sequence with Io. Bliss got caught with the Bailey to Belly. Belair and Bailey then had a sequence together. Belair ended up as the base for the other two baby faces. Um, she was like right between the middle and top rope. They stood on her back and did a double superplex on Bailey off the ropes. Belair pressed Kai off the ropes for a fallaway slam. Then she countered a scorpion kick into a powerbomb. Kai avoided a high risk move and hit the scorpion kick back on Belair. Bailey then held Belair by her braid over the ropes, so keeping her stuck in the corner as Kai hit her big running boot. Then they triple tagged. Bailey hit a rose plant and Io came off the top with a moonsault for the one, two, three on the champion in 19 minutes. This was a tremendous opening match. Great action from all six women, including Bliss. Everyone got a chance to shine. It was given plenty of time. And most importantly, we got the right winners. I didn't expect them to go over Belair, but they gave her a great excuse, basically eating a three-on-one attack in the finish. And given Bailey got the pin, it's immediately setting up the title feud that we've been expected, Belair versus Bailey. I assume they're going to do that right away at Extreme Rules. I could even see it going two months potentially. Uh, but this was fantastic bell-to-bell, -bell, probably 
just shy of what I would consider excellent. So I went 3.75 stars and a B plus, but that's still a very damn good grade for a six woman tag team match um, at a show like this. They were exceptional in the ring here. Even Bliss, who I've been criticizing as of late, she held her own. Was she the weak link of the entire thing? Sure. But her moments, that when she got them, she was damn good in the ring. And lastly here, in terms of the main card, what was announced and promoted, Edge and Rey Mysterio fought Judgment Day. Edge got an incredible ovation. The crowd even sang Metalingus for him. He wore a dragon mask to the ring and they were matching he and Rey Mysterio in red and black. Mysterio and Finn Balor were on fire to start the match. There was a choreographed but cool spot with Edge powerbombing Rey over the ropes into Judgment Day. Mysterio pulled Damian Priest's leg out for a low blow after he box jumped onto the barricade. So he, his area uh, slammed into the barricade. Edge got the hot tag, hitting Balor with execution. Mysterio hit a seated senton on Priest at ringside and then took down Balor with a fucking 619. Ray followed with his flying splash, but Priest barely broke the fall. Edge then took Priest out with Biggie's tope spear off the apron. Balor countered the spear back inside with a sling blade and a shotgun dropkick. Dominic distracted the referee. Ray took Balor off the top with a huge hurricanrana. Rhea Ripley destroyed Dom outside, but Ray took her out with a tope suicida as Dom was in her arms. Balor escaped a 619 attempt, but Dom tripped him as he was running the ropes. Ray came back with the 619 as Edge followed with a spear to get the win in 12 minutes. After the bell, the baby faces were celebrating. Edge, you could tell, was proud of Dom for helping them. He put his hand on his shoulder like a proud uncle. Dom initially looked at him like kind of odd, and then he just low blowed him with a kick right to the balls. Ray immediately started screaming at Dom, really pissed off at what he did. And Dom like kind of put his arm around his dad and then surprised him with a huge lariat as the crowd gave Dominic Mysterio so much freaking heat. You would have thought like the dragon, that AR dragon lit fire to the ring. I was shocked how great the crowd reacted to this from a heat standpoint. What was even better than that was Judgment Day was watching the entire thing transpire from the apron. Like Balor was on the apron and Priest and uh, Ripley were ring, were kind of like ringside looking into the ring and all three of them just start cackling. They absolutely love to see what Dominic did. It was, it was a great camera shot. The cameras then stayed on Dom as he got booed walking backstage. Ray hugged Edge in the ring. Then he got down on one knee to apologize to his partner, basically saying, hey, obviously that wasn't on purpose and I, I can't, Apologize enough for what my son did. The best part about the heel turn is the execution of it was completely unexpected. We all thought Dominic was gonna turn heel, right? And we assumed he would interfere in the match, costing the faces and then joining Judgment Day at the end. Instead, he actively helped them win, but he got angry and jealous seeing Edge and Ray celebrate together. And that is why he turned. Judgment Day didn't play a role in the entire thing. And I loved the shot, like I already said, of Judgment Day cackling, even though he didn't join them. They just liked seeing the legends get something, get it coming to them. And Edge also had an awesome expression on the kick where he was just bewildered that Dom did this to him. It it was really well executed top to bottom. But best of all, as I already mentioned, it got legitimate heat, which a heel turn always needs. The lariat was super snug. Dom has probably been waiting to do this to his dad for 10 years. The crowd was incredible. The match was great. 
A little too much chaos, but everyone did get some time in the spotlight and the finish was exceptionally smooth. 3.75 stars and a B plus for this also and extra credit to the crowd. I have no idea though, how they end up following up this story with Dom. It would be great if he just took the heel persona to NXT because he really does still need training and development. He's not ready for the main roster. Another option could be him joining Legato del Fantasma, looking up to another father figure or something like that whenever they eventually debut. With Edge and Ray winning, perhaps they will be the team that ultimately dethrones the Usos. We are kind of expecting that Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn may form a team to dethrone the Usos. But now all of a sudden we have multiple superstar teams where you can kind of say, well, assuming Owens and Sammy get together, that obviously hasn't happened yet. But if that does happen, plus you have Ray and uh, Edge here, now suddenly you have a couple, you know, big time superstar teams that would be legitimate contenders for the Usos and legitimate people to take the titles off of them. Because right now, other than the Viking Raiders, there's no one. And that would be a heel versus heel feud. And I just don't see them going in that direction. So we will see how this plays into that. Maybe they challenge for the titles, but ultimately don't win them. We'll find out. Uh, Lastly here, there was a previously unannounced match on the kickoff show, Madcap Moss and the Street Profits against Austin Theory and Alpha Academy. This was announced during the kickoff show. Uh, Moss had a fire hot tag. He hit Otis with a fallaway slam that was really impressive. Chad Gable wound up on Angela Dawkins' shoulders outside. Montez Ford ran the ropes and hit a Tope Suicida blockbuster into a pile of guys. Ford then followed with the frog splash for the one, two, three. The match was fine. The finish was incredible. Perfect kickoff show match with the baby faces getting to go over in front of the crowd. I went three stars and a B minus for this. Uh, There was also, I should note, a great moment on the show where WWE honored Bret Hart and the British Bulldog for their match 30 years ago. Bret was in attendance. Davey Boy Smith's family was also in the crowd. We saw Bret. We didn't really see the family. It would have been nice if they had stood up and gotten an ovation. I don't know why they didn't do that, but it was still cool. As mentioned, Tyson Fury was there. UFC welterweight champion Leon Edwards was there, as was Johnny Saint, Adrian Street, and Miss Linda. The latter are Wales natives and I guess local wrestlers that are famous. I didn't know either of them, but they were all in the crowd. Uh, Before we get to the grades for the entire show, WWE did hold a press conference immediately after Clash at the Castle. And I thought that was curious. I was wondering what the purpose of it was. Were they gonna develop a storyline? Were they gonna do this or that? And they really didn't. It was just a real press conference like Triple H used to do after NXT takeovers. The difference between this and that is the takeover one was just Triple H. This included wrestlers as well. Uh, So Triple H opened it with a statement. He didn't take questions initially. He did at the end. He said to expect major shows like this all across the world, given WWE knows it can get great fan reactions and great crowds like this in Europe, presumably Asia, Australia, etc. He also indicated that Bad Bunny will probably have another match coming up sooner than later, and he has a planned phone call with him to discuss that coming up. Uh, Roman Reigns was the first person out. He was asked one question about the atmosphere. He refused to answer, saying he would prefer the media do what the UK fans did not which was acknowledge him. And that's true because the crowd was completely against him the entire match. And once he gave that answer, he just walked out. Uh, Gunther was up there with Seth Rollins and Liv Morgan. He said, Sheamus is a legend. The rest of the questions were worthless. And then Drew McIntyre came out last with Tyson Fury. He shouted out the UK and he said he hoped it was just the beginning for the WWE over there that obviously it wouldn't be 30 years again before they did a stadium show in the United Kingdom. So that was the press conference. Again, really uneventful. I stayed to watch it, uh, but... It just didn't really do much of anything. 
Now that we've completed the WWE Clash at the Castle instant analysis, it is time to give you our post-show grades. So let's start with the pre-show grades. Uh, Chris and I, both during the Ultimate Preview, gave this an A-. We thought it was going to be a top-tier WWE show, but we also kind of said it's going to be really tough for WWE to live up to those high expectations. Normally, uh, we give the show, you know, a a B or a B+, a B-, because the builds recently, in the recent past at least, for WWE haven't been great for the premium live events, yet they've ended up coming out and over-delivering on the shows themselves. So we both are at A-, noting, hey, there's a small area for WWE to exceed expectations. There's also a very wide gulf uh, where they can fall below expectations. And the listeners agree. Uh, In our pre-show poll on Twitter, 55% of you expected an A, 42% expected a B, 1% C, 2% D to F. I don't even know how you get to D or F. But 97% combined said it would be an A or B. And given the majority of those was A, it kind of breaks the tie between an A- minus or a B+. You guys agreed with us, gave it an A- minus for the show. Uh, now, in terms of post-show grades, normally I let Chris go first. He's not here. So I'll go ahead and give you my grade. And then I will read your grades from the post-show poll that we also posted on Twitter at Getting Overcast. The first takeaway is they got to do more shows in the United Kingdom. Like, this was fantastic, just straight up. Um... It was both great because of the crowd reaction and because we got legitimate, great wrestling. There was not a single match on the show that was bad or disappointing. Even if you didn't necessarily love the finish to something, or even like me, if you were really, really annoyed by the final closing moment of the show with Tyson Fury and Drew McIntyre, that doesn't take away from the exceptionally high match quality that we had this. I had, there were two A-plus matches on this show, whether 475 or 5, I'm going to go back and watch both of them and come up with a final determination. But in the moment, at least, I gave them both five stars. The UK crowd sold everything that happened to the point that I hope WWE saw this and says, you know what? SummerSlam, Survivor Series, or even maybe a Royal Rumble, we got to give these guys one of the major shows. We got to do it in London and we got to sell the hell out of that stadium because this crowd was phenomenal. This crowd got over the things that WWE wants to get over on television. And you need to have major shows in front of crowds like this to ensure that happens going forward. In the end though, because there were no title changes and because nothing happened that was overly eventful, it kind of felt like one of the WWE super showdowns. It, and if I think if you contextualize Clash at the Castle like the Super Showdown that they did in Australia, then you would say, well, this was far better than that. This kicked the hell out of that. Kicked ass. Um, but it also didn't have a lot of things. It didn't have the celebrity matches. And I don't need a celebrity match. I'm just noting that it didn't have one. It didn't have any title changes. Um, we did technically get a debut in Solo Sokoa, but we didn't really get any of the surprises we thought we might. And on top of all of that, it was a shallow card with only six matches plus a late kickoff show match. Now, it went plenty long and all of the matches got really good time, which they get credit for that. But you look at it and you say, well, why wasn't AJ Styles or Kevin Owens on this card? Where was the United States champion? Bobby Lashley, was it the right decision to not have Bianca Belair defend her title and instead do the six-woman match? I would say yes to that, by the way. I'm just pointing out that it's a consideration. And you look at, those are just a very small grouping of names who are not on this show. The Usos didn't have a tag team title match. They're the undisputed champions. Why wouldn't they defend the titles? So 
you look at a lot of the match build, uh, the card build, I'm sorry, and you say, this was really, really good, but it could have been better if they had changed the title at the end. You might be talking about an A-plus show. You really might. Instead, I can't go there. It was not an A-plus show. It was exceptional. It was excellent. Was it the best premium live event or pay-per-view of the year? I don't think it was. Um, and that's something I'm going to have to reevaluate as the entire year progresses and when we eventually get to our end of year uh, awards, which we will do here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast uh, around New Year's Eve, right, right at the end of uh, 2022. Uh, in terms of my grade, though, I'm going to go with very much what our audience believes, and that is that this is an A show. It exceeded expectations. It was better than I thought it would be. Uh, Seth Rollins, Matt Riddle, and Gunther Sheamus were just exceptional top-tier matches. And Roman Reigns, Drew McIntyre, even if you forget, even if you don't count the Solo Sokoa thing at the very end, it's still just, it was very, very good. But on its own, I wouldn't say it was great or memorable. Despite the crowd reaction, despite the great false finishes at the end, I'll probably rewatch it once or twice before the month is out, but I don't know that I'll ever watch it again after that. Whereas Gunther and Sheamus, I will definitely watch that again. And the same I can definitely say for Matt Riddle and Seth Rollins. So I am at a flat A for this, slightly exceeding my expectations. And you, the getting overheads, our listeners and followers on Twitter, I think you agreed. 80% flat said this was an A, 16% B, 2% C, and 2% D to F. Again, I don't know how anyone's giving it a D or F unless you're a troll, but it's very clear. 96% of respondents said it's an A or a B with a vast majority giving it an A more so even than our pre-show expectation grade. So we leave WWE Clash at the Castle with an A grade. I'm sure a lot of you uh, listen to this show. You very much want to hear what vintage Chris Vanini has to say about WWE Clash at the Castle. You will get to hear that on Tuesday's WWE episode. There's a reason, multiple reasons actually, uh, why I did not read any DMs or any of your comments or questions on the show. First is I'm in a time crunch today, but second, it's because I want Chris to be able to share his thoughts on the show. And I think by reading many of those questions and comments, it will kind of give him the opportunity to answer them and provide his thoughts as we run down Clash at the Castle before we get into uh, the Go Home Smackdown, extra stuff from there. We'll talk about that on Tuesday. And of course, the Raw after Clash at the Castle, which is going down, of course, live this coming Monday. So be sure to tune into that WWE episode on Tuesday for more Clash at the Castle talk. And of course, of course, a lot more WWE talk. Between now and then, we have another loaded day of performance-enhancing audio ready for you on Sunday. We will have an AEW All Out and NXT Worlds Collide instant analysis podcast Sunday night as soon as All Out goes off the air. Before that, we will have live shows on Twitter Spaces, pre-shows for both NXT Worlds Collide sometime around the 3 p.m. Eastern hour and AEW All Out sometime around the 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern hour. It's really going to depend when that first show ends and when the AEW All Out uh, zero hour kickoff show begins. We try, we hope that we wouldn't eat into that um, with our pre-show up. We'd like to be able to have you guys watch the matches and not uh, interfere. 
But nevertheless, you will have that instant analysis podcast Sunday night once All Out goes off the air. You will get both pre-shows, and there will be four polls posted on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast. You can give us your pre-show and post-show grades for both NXT Worlds Collide and All Out. Between now and those shows, you may be wondering, what can I do for you, Silver King? Thank you so much for this instant analysis for WWE Clash of the Castle. Well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can remember that this podcast So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, and why they should subscribe. Those help us so much. I've expressed it so frequently to you. I know how many of you listen. I know how many written reviews we have. There's a huge, huge gulf between those two numbers. So please, if you're a longtime listener especially, but even if if you're a first-time listener, just hitting us up. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you stick around and subscribe for more episodes. Please go ahead, drop that five-star rating, and leave a review. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast as we provided you with instant analysis of WWE Clash at the Castle. Much more to come this weekend going into Tuesday and our next WWE show. But at this point, the Silver King is going to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.